Welcome to the Culture and Performance Podcast with me, Ben Ryan. Now, my guest this week questions the idea of what success is and how most people can look at sport and life in a very different way. We've been seeing the last, these last few years of some of the incredibly damaging effects that can come of this human aspect being absent from elite sport, of kind of abusive systems and toxic cultures. The present moment is all that we ever really have, but we get so lost and so wrapped up in, in the clouds of the past or the future. Just two hours a week spent in green spaces, not even in wild nature, but just in green spaces, can have a, a profound impact on your mental health. Lawrence Halstead is a double Olympian, a fencer who achieved European medals, as well as helping to take the GB fencing programme from amateur to professional and qualify the team for an Olympics for the first time in the modern era. He's a former performance director for the Danish Fencing Federation and now director of mentoring at the True Athlete Project, as well as a performance consultant and coach. This podcast turns into a fascinating conversation that evolves around topics such as mentoring, dealing with failure and doubt, life balance and the power of positive relationships. But we start with the idea of self-compassion. We're noticing, people are noticing their kind of in a existence a little bit more and in a negative sense kind of burnout and stress and anxiety and i guess they're looking for they're open for ways to to help themselves in whatever sense and i think actually if they if they read anything or hear anything that i say about it it just twigs very quickly that this is something quite powerful i mean it is like i described in the book my experience of it was kind of a, a revelation and I've found that when I've spoken to people, I had a conversation with a friend from Deloitte and we were talking about his team burning out and stressing. I, I just told him about self-compassion as a, as a concept and he just, it just, his eyes lit up and it was, it was just something that, that seems to make sense very quickly to people. Like, yeah, that, that is something that could help. And, and they notice it immediately where they're, they've been living the opposite. They've been living the, the self-critical approach. And that's that's standard, right? It's people being overly harsh and self-critical. So there's a, a, a really clear juxtaposition of, well, I've, I've been doing it this way, thinking this is the right way and this is how I'm going to get forward. But immediately I can see that that's a much more sustainable and probably kind of more effective method as well. When you talked about how you came across it, that's alluding to your conversation with Katie Warriner. Um, the sports psychologist yeah were you working with her at seven in the sevens and no so katie came after i left we didn't have a, a we had a, a psych that came in and out a little bit we didn't have a full-time one but i know katie from a couple of groups that i've been involved in and uh yeah she does some great work she's and she's across a whole spectrum of different sports i've had conversations with athletes though that have had moments of clarity where somebody from the outside has come in to open up their thinking maybe and see different things and and sports psychologists are certainly one of that group of people that can really help athletes grow mentally what did she what did she do for you then it was fascinating because i I studied psychology at university never did sports psychology that wasn't on the on on the menu but and and i've worked kind of being in fencing i've worked come across psychs before being offered kind of work with them in various ways and just nothing had struck me as something I really want to dive into until I met Katie, you know, it was in a time of, of need, of kind of a dark time of, depre- of, of injury, not quite depression, but so, and she, I mean, she clearly is a very special person in, in what she does. Like everybody I've spoken to has a very similar experience with her, of just 
she really knows how to how to get like see the person in front of her and, and work with them and she just had this totally yeah she had this totally different approach to to mine at the time I had an amazing I, I remember incredibly vividly the first talk I had was with Steve Peters and Katie at the time because she was working she was his kind of understudy so she was using the the, the chimp model and I met I met them both in a hotel room south of London somewhere and I was talking to him he was kind of the one diving in at the first and he's incredibly intense I remember it just being just straight into my kind of into my chimp and no, no holds barred and he had this this one kind of thought experiment of describing the, these two children running a race and one is yeah, one wins but is not is just not very satisfied with it and then another one comes in the same race comes seventh or last and is super happy because they finished the race and is just really chuffed with themselves and then he asked which which child do you want and I said well, of course I want the one that's unsatisfied with their top performance and I saw Katie's face just she just her face dry jaw dropped like how could anybody answer that question away but it seemed seemed right through me that that was that was my approach was and so she just had this totally different kind of approach to high performance sport that had some really great exercises that, that kind of led me through it but it was her it was just her way of kind of explaining it as of opening up very forthright very kind of also kind of yeah not sugarcoating things but and I think I appreciate that with the sports sites that I've really liked working with also in my professional life have been those who just they don't try and take the softer approach it's not that every every opinion and every kind of perspective is equally good and it's not some some opinions some perspectives are really stupid and they're really ineffective and they need to be pointed out and I think Katie was good at doing that in a, in a respectful way when you opened yourself up to sports psych and felt happier at what you were doing you saw some incremental performance results did were they first or was the first thing your feelings of wellness and fulfillment starting to come through well they, they came pretty close in succession but the first kind of the primary focus was just kind of getting my getting me back on track after this injury um to not necessarily well, I did I was trying to qualify back for the, the Olympic team so I had to be some somewhat performance rated but just kind of getting through in a way that I could be somewhat proud of. Um, so I kind of, in the lead up to the Olympics, I reached that point where I was, I was kind of satisfied with the approach or the attitude that I had to my teammates, to, to the training, to everything around it, having not got everything that I wanted out of that kind of the selection. And then kind of, I had this experience at the Olympics, my performance immediately just, I felt something very different in it. And then when I came back again for my second run at the Olympics, then it was just, it was very clear that that approach was, was paying dividends for, for performance. There's a few things that are spinning off in your, your answers there because um, Lawrence's for, for the listeners has won silver and, and bronzes in the European Championships and sixth place in a world championship and double Olympian in 2012 and 2016 in a Great Britain team that had had not qualified for long, long periods. If, if, in fact, when was the last time before London? Well, we never qualified a team by kind of in the, this modern era of, of qualification standards. So this was the first time we qualified, and in London, it was a, we took a quota place for our team. So actually, Rio was the first time we qualified by right through the, the world ranking. And after 2012, you took a couple of years off. Mm. 
And so I'm sp- I'm spinning off in, in my head as a looking at, you know, the, our podcast is around culture and performance and different ways to achieve that. And I've got a couple of years off in a, in a big, important cycle. I've got the program going from amateur to professional as well. And that therefore means you're going to amateur professional. That's fascinating on loads of levels. And then why take two years out after a London Olympic Games, but come back in a good place to then perform really well in Rio? Yeah, well, there's a, there's a thread that runs... That- and it's roots further back about me as an athlete that I was, I was never, I, I never wanted to be all about the sport and it's been pointed out to me and I've recognized, well, that, that might also be why I never made it to number one in the world or top 10 in the world, even just kind of top 20. But so I, I actually, t- I took two years out in, in my early twenties when I was studying at university and my second two years in uni, I, I stopped fencing as well. And those were my first two senior years. So those are supposedly the hardest years to kind of transition from junior to senior. And I took that completely off and then managed to get back into it and got up to a high level. And then I did, yeah, I did it again after, after London. So I see those, those periods as being on the one side, true to myself, the things that I, I cared about. I wanted to focus on my experience at university more than just carrying on. Actually, we didn't really have an opportunity for, for funding for, for kind of a salary or anything that was, at that time that came right after I graduated but uh yeah and then again after London it was such it was just such a, a stressful experience that year leading up to the London Olympics I got injured was out for four months struggled to get back in the team I just knew like I, I needed to take a, a solid break and I, I I planned whilst one of the ways I, I took to you know the, I took getting over that injury during that period when I was at my kind of lowest was to plan this year after the Olympics. So regardless of what comes, whether I, I make it or not, if I get a result or not, I was going to have this, what turned out to be an incredible year. So that was a, a coping strategy as well. And then that year turned into two, which was kind of naturally that I'd, I'd moved to, met my now wife and then moved to Copenhagen by the end of that and was kind of enjoying what I was doing here without too much of the other pressures and we're still training a little bit in one of the clubs here so it just kind of happened naturally that second year wasn't wasn't particularly planned it was just enjoying life and then that the kind of fire to to come back hit me then and I and by then I was I, I was set up pretty well so I had a good number of years of, of really hard kind of high level training and, and preparation and had kept my eye on the game but I also had this kind of new approach that I'd built right up until the, the London Olympics and so that that I took with me as well I, I just I came at that, that that kind of second cycle up to Rio with a with a very different attitude and would benefit me hugely at that time I, and I, I do think it would have helped me early on in my life as well it's interesting I can think of a couple of national Olympic organizations that actively encourage their athletes to have a year out in between cycles I think of the Dutch uh, rowing and, and I think I think I'm right in saying, but I have to double check this that they might be they might fully fund that year off as well, because they can see the benefit in performance coming from having that refresh, and getting that hunger back or whatever it might be in that one year. Would you? I mean, now as as I know I know the Danish fencing is predominantly amateur, right? And so you're your performance director of a, of Olympic sports, but most of the athletes. Um, will have to earn some income from other other income streams but take away the the monthly payments that professional athletes might be getting could you see the benefits i know you've had it yourself but could you see the benefits of actually embedding it into a program as something that's 
a conversation you have with every athlete in between cycles like do you fancy a year out do you want to do something different yeah without doubt i mean yeah for, it wouldn't be a, a requirement i don't think because odds factor is just desperate to carry on and that can be a positive thing as well um i know most olympic kind of participants will take a few months off after the games i can definitely see the benefit of of a longer period and if that came without the yeah, whilst kind of keeping your your funding then i imagine a lot more and a lot more would do it and yeah there, there could just definitely be some some great performance kind of benefits to come off the back of it as well I and mean, four years is a really long time to to really just push yourself towards that goal i mean it doesn't need to be that long it's maybe maybe there's a slight difference earlier in your career versus later in your career Earlier, we know you, you do need to kind of build up the hours of training, the hours of, especially in technical sports, you need to you need to put, put time into your training. A bit later on in your career, that can, that's not quite so important. So just getting your kind of, your approach, your mindset, your attitude right can be all important. So I, I, I went down in my, my technical training that second run for Rio as well, quite significantly. So I was only doing fencing training two times a week and then doing really hardcore kind of physical training to make sure I was in top shape i suppose you would have done some of that because because you would have already had those however you want to call it from skill acquisition term but you're in that autonomous phase and had those ten thousand hours or different ways of putting it so that skill would come back fairly quickly and so it was just topping up and refining up yeah I'm, I'm assuming that's and you you were very clear on that so it was never a negative for athletes that sometimes will worry about not doing certain things even if it's thinking in, in more my world a, a footballer or a rugby player that needs to a striker that will have to practice a deliberate skill every almost every session so that they feel confident in that even though they they are probably no better off doing that than, than if they just did it once or twice a week because they'd already got if they're experienced and they've got those hours in a, in a bank and it's the same for rugby players and goal kickers and sometimes you get the over overuse stuff or you just put too much focus on it and it and it becomes a negative right yeah and it i mean for, for me it had this added bonus i knew i mean i put in like six seven years seriously kind of dedicated training leading up to the london olympics and if i was if i was gonna i knew that to get the most out of myself for rio that rio cycle i was just gonna i just couldn't do it in the same way i couldn't i couldn't turn up to, to the fencing gym five, six times a week. It just, it wouldn't be enjoyable. I'd, I wouldn't have the motivation to do it. So I really cut down and had super quality in every session that I did and, and gave myself, myself space to, to do some other things. So I, I took up some part-time work alongside as a performance director. So um, just that, like I said, that approach just gave me, kind of gave me the fire. I don't think I could or would have wanted to have done it in the same way. So you've had your career as a, as an athlete, and you know Olympics, and lots of different triumphs on the way, and also lots of different uh, moments of clarity as well as injuries. So you've kind of had the full deck, right? Um, and you're now in a position where you get to make decisions on programs. You know, as far as the as far as both both the the, the true athlete project that that we'll talk about shortly, but also the Danish fencing program as as performance director. Now, a couple of things pop up for me that. You're in an amateur sport that's that's I think has got. Would you say you've got a plan to hopefully turn it into a professional sport in Denmark? The plan has been to be funded by Team Denmark, the equivalent of UK Sport, and therefore get more 
certainly more the, the athletes costs covered there's very few professional athletes in Denmark altogether even at the top top level um, there's a few badminton players rowers handball players but but it's very few um, on the other side though you can you can get paid a salary to study so lots of athletes are studying for, for many years doing their bachelors and masters over seven eight years and you've also you know whether they're they're being they're being paid or not they are they are fully committed to the sport and and you will have a large say in helping to mold them to become their best versions now it's nice to see a performance director that hasn't got a strong background in analytics and sports science you know that there was a there was a trend and there has been a trend in world sport where lots of performance directors because that's the first thing you can measure in data uh, as far as you know how fast someone runs workloads stuff you do in the gym the stuff that's hard harder to measure the performance the culture the, the self-compassion all those sort of things have were kind of put to the back of the queue really in elite sport and as a result of that decision makers in my opinion around that as performance directors have only just started to come into those jobs now where they previously were held by people that could just measure stuff. As a position of one of the newer breed of performance directors that's looking at a more holistic, unmeasurable in traditional forms, ways of helping athletes, have you got a clear philosophy of, as you as a head of, a, head of a, an organisation, what you would see as the, the absolute non-negotiables things that you want to have in your program that if I was to sit down with one of the athletes they would say yeah this is this 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 and this happen and this is what's helping me become my best version lots to lots to unpack there First, firstly I would say I mean I definitely recognize myself as that type of performance director or leader that is far more focused on the things that you, you can't measure than those you can I, I think I take this also from my my own journey of you focus on the process and you try and get the process as, as good as possible and then the outcome will take care of itself and that I guess that could go in, in both the data-driven way and the other way but I also just thoroughly believe uh, we've, we've been on this hunt for the marginal gains for now and 20 years now and and I as, as I see it we're missing huge gains real kind of 20-30 percent gains through creating environments that are kind of truly psychologically informed environments. So we're, we're using that term more often now, but basically environments where, which are aligned with psychological principles about how humans work best. So self-determination theory, personality science, um, just getting the most out of people and a range of people, not just a specific type of person fits into this way that we've always done it. So. The, this traditional culture or this tradition idea, traditional idea of what a resilient athlete is, kind of that grit to being able to really just grind out sessions and take a beating, take a critical feedback and just get on and carry on. That really works for some people and can create some, some incredible results. But there's this waste of, of athletes who, who that doesn't work for, who could definitely be as good or better than those who, who it does work for. And they're just lost in the system. They're just not up for it. They're, like, they're not up for that, that level of kind of brutalizing. And I think, yeah, that kind of holistic approach and seeing the individual, and not just seeing them as athlete machines, could really lead, lead us to, to huge gains where not just these marginal gains. And that's through, through keeping people longer in the system, through enhancing their own kind of personal motivation, through, through them just being kind of happier and healthier people. 
being therefore being better athletes, that classic All Blacks saying. So what were you experience in the program that I have hopefully created and uh, creating? Um, I think you, you generally hear athletes talk about just enjoying being part of the experience. And that's that kind of guides me a lot is I, I want a program that puts a lot of emphasis on the experience of the people involved and not, not just the athletes, the, the coaches and staff as well, that, that everyone has, everyone feels like it's somewhere that they want to be and are, are thriving in it. A certain, a certain amount of autonomy. So there's, like, yeah, we are, we are an amateur sport in Denmark, so it makes it more kind of possible or, or more essential, but there's a lot of autonomy. There's very few absolutely obligatory kind of activities for, for these athletes they have to they have to buy in i don't hold their salary kind of accountable I, we have agreements that they sign but otherwise we they basically just them and the coaches i i don't have i don't have paid national coaches i pay them for for training camps and such so really when i want things when i want people to do things in this program they have to they have to see the value in it and they have to buy in themselves so so there's just quite a lot of kind of autonomy built into the system so I guess those are those two two elements of it: autonomy and kind of the uh, positive experience. I'm curious to to see if most of the stuff I've worked in is is around team sports, although I dip into to individual sports occasionally. And the and one of the words that you used early on that's one of my favourites: juxtaposition between athletes that see how they want to be treated differently can sometimes cause some some real friction and challenge for a head coach so if if you and i want to coach to create that that environment that you've just talked about but there's certain players in those environments particularly in the team that just that don't want that sort of they want a tough they want an uncompromising they want a a a critical environment where it's less about empowerment and more about direction just being told what to do and do it harder and double down on it when when things are good i see that quite a lot um, and so, you know, you, there'll be different groups in, in a football team that will think differently, different groups in, a, in, in rugby teams, basketball teams. Have you come across that in individual sport at all? And any tips for how you might overcome that? They're all vastly different people requiring asking for different approaches in, in an individual, individual sport. I imagine just the same as the individuals in a team. It's the same difference. Yeah, I guess, except in ind- individual sports, it can have an effect if people want to be treated differently you know so timings for example if some people really don't mind about whether whether they rock up on time or they late and other people it really affects them and will have a knock-on effect for everything else but within a team organization they've almost got to den the coach has got to choose one way to deliver some of the stuff whether it's feedback or team meetings or and to manage those different characters have you ever had anything that you've had as an overseeing kind of overarching principles that some athletes have gone, yeah, I'm in. Others, that's not how I want things to be done. Yeah, I, I mean, it feels like that's the, it's just a central theme of, of my role has been negotiating the differences in personality that I'm working with in different groups, different clubs, fences from different areas. And yeah, they just come with a totally different set of requirements or perspectives. I try, I try and just be as flexible as possible and, and work to, to the person in front of me. Yeah, I have that, that benefit that I don't, there's not too many decisions that have, that have to affect a whole group. They do also compete as a team in fencing. So often in competitions, there'll be an individual event and then a day after, a few days after a team event. 
Um, and then I think there are some things like being on time for team meetings and breakfast, being the other day, whatever it is, then those are the things that people have to just, just adhere to. In terms of non-negotiables, yeah, there's, I think that's something that maybe has to flex a bit that as much as possible to not have non-negotiables in terms of behaviours or just have, or if you do, they're kind of around specific behaviours, not about generally, punctuality is a good example. When does somebody have to be absolutely on time and when can that flex, for example, because I've struggled, I've struggled with athletes with just, I've, I've made it very clear how much I care about people being on time and it's barely made a, a bit of difference, but it can make a difference if I'm very specific. These are the times we absolutely need to be here together. I think it just comes from my, uh, I have a, an underlying philosophy in this of, of just trying to see the person in front of me and deal with them as they, as they present rather than as I want them to be. I've also seen very different personality types succeed at really a very high level through ways that I wouldn't have chosen in any sense for myself or wouldn't have asked, wouldn't, wouldn't try and put into a system. So I've kind of had the evidence that it can work in different ways. The resonation for me on some of this is, is that you've talked a couple of, well, more than a couple of times, a few times about, you know, one of my overarching core fundamentals is I want to coach, I want to lead the person that's in front of me and to be able to differentiate and understand them and get to know them on a deeper level. The True Athlete Project, a lot of, a lot of the work that, that, that you guys do around that centres around that philosophy as well. I wonder if you wouldn't mind just explaining to the listener what the True Athlete Project is all about. I'd love to. I mean, at our heart, our mission is to create a more compassionate society through sport knowing that sport is an incredible tool and vehicle for kind of personal growth and societal change. But on the other side of the coin, that it often and far too often is the opposite, has incredibly negative effects on individuals and, and on society when it's done, done badly, done poorly. So we have a, a range of programs with kind of a thread of mindfulness running through them all, but working at all levels of sport. So with community sports centres and schools up to NGBs and Olympic, Paralympic level athletes and kind of just gathering a community of people who, who see sport, see what sport could be and, and know that there are necessary changes. So, yeah, that kind of that holistic approach is it comes directly from the, the work that we're doing. Seeing the, seeing the person behind the athlete is absolutely central to that. And I, I run the, the mentoring program for, for that. And it's a, we match elite level athletes with young aspiring athletes and they, the, the mentees, are, they don't have a level required of them. They just have to be committed to their sport. And, and partly that's because we want it to be inclusive to all, but we also, because you never know just which people are going to have the biggest impact. It's not just those who, who are the best at 15 to, or 20 who are, going to have the biggest impact on their communities it could be anyone really yeah and you could have someone that's a mentee um that's not going to make it at the top end of their sport but they might end up being a key administrator or somebody that really drives social change in that sport or a coach or a coach or a coach yeah a little old coach yeah and we but we we have a we kind of we run workshops and we have a, an approach that thinks that sees the coach as, a, as one of the key drivers of societal change, the social change maker. I mean, it's I think the role of the coach is highly undervalued in society. And 
under-recognized for that it's an incredible driver for social change yeah we definitely definitely as a as a coach you definitely know that you have some power that you can yield in the right way especially when you're in charge of a national sport that's you know that's that can make a difference so you know the the fijian head coach of sevens it's a national sport so what you say goes so you know we drove programs around reducing diabetic rates in the country um some stuff will be about attending school and it will have a big ripple effect and people actually will listen to, to me whether you know and so you do have to use that quite carefully so it's interesting that you've said that and you've put that into the mentoring stuff there's I mean uh, uh, bouncing around a little bit but you've got kind of five areas for the mentoring that you do there's a few that that pop up that you look at and go well, what's that in there for like nature and connectedness but I'm quite a big believer in a certain element of this and there's five. So this, that's the first one. There's performance, identity and values, mindfulness and community and responsibility. Now, the mindfulness we'll jump back in on because um, I know that, that it's important to you and it's often misunderstood. But nature and connectedness, what's that all about? It's, it's, it's fascinating. When I, I introduce these topics to every mentor and mentee that, that we interview to come onto the programme and the athletes that train outdoors, they get that, that module immediately. They understand that kind of importance, the, the effect of the weather and, and nature on them, on their mood and, and how they are, and just the importance of a connection to nature. And indoor athletes often are kind of raise an eyebrow. Right? But, but basically this, this module, it, it, it zooms out. It just shows how holistic our program is. It's not just about who they are as, a, as a, an athlete, but who they are as a person in society and as a human living on this planet and the importance of having a connection to nature for, for your well-being and mental health. We're seeing now just how vital it is to, to have some kind of connection to nature, but also how you can harness that for, for performance benefits. So that's kind of in a nutshell what that, that module is about. I'm a big advocate of that. And it came from my, my dad having conversations with me when I was a kid about a guy called Percy Ceruti. I don't know if you've heard about him. So Percy was a coach in the 1950s. Um, middle distance long distance and he coached Herb Elliott amongst others who I think was under, under undefeated in his career as a middle distance athlete and one of the, one of his key principles was train athletes in beautiful places you know he, he was he would take them to some terrible places physically and mentally but he'd train them in a beautiful place and he felt that that was that yin and yang a little bit with how he worked and I, when I was with Fiji I would take the players up to sand dunes and we'd do the, the, the work there high in the sand dunes in the Singatoka sand dunes. And one, one story I've got about that that maybe shows that where things can connect to climate change and stuff like that, and Fiji obviously is quite important in, in that conversation, we went up there and we went up there with lots of water bottles and you have to make sure that you clear all your rubbish away. It's a World Heritage Site and it could... And um, someone took a photograph of a bottle that we had left there. Now, I didn't think we had left it. I think a couple, sometimes some, some, some villages come up because we had been very careful. But it led to a, quite, a, quite a heated conversations in, in the media that this, this team, the, the, the role models, have left some plastic bottles up on a, this beautiful be these beautiful dunes and don't they understand? And we, we ended up doing lots of things around having a good conversation around that and leading to the players and the staff being used in some of those conversations um, in schools around climate change and the importance of it. And so maybe there's a connection there that once you start to train more regularly and appreciate the beautiful places that you train in, 
that you take it a step further and you think, well, hold on, I want this to remain the case for future generations of athletes. Where can I jump on to try to help make a difference? That is where my thought process has gone with that, Lawrence. Yeah, it's a lovely, lovely story. It definitely, it definitely speaks into it in, a, in quite a powerful way. I mean, what we're, what we're trying to do is kind of raise some awareness in, in younger athletes of the things that will that are meaningful to them, that we know lead to a meaningful kind of fulfilling life and how we can connect those messages into sport, into their kind of athletic experience. So that connection to nature piece is, I mean, there, there's so much research that shows that if you, if you spend time in nature, you're, you're kind of protecting your mental health in quite profound ways. So just, just two hours a week spent in green spaces, not even in wild nature, but just in green spaces can have a, a profound impact on your mental health. And connected to this kind of this, the issue of our times around climate change, it's just, I don't think any, any of us can avoid that. And a program like ours just, it's the right place to include something like that. Yeah, you talk about it, forest bathing in Japan and various other initiatives that, that go sometimes countrywide. The whole mentoring process, um, where do you see the biggest benefits? Mentoring is an incredibly powerful tool. And it's been just such a joy to be on this journey with this program i had an experience mentoring a, a young a nine-year-old boy when i was when i was training i just kind of took that on a, as part of a charity a kind of classic big brother thing and it's still just one of the most meaningful things i've ever done it just that power of mentoring it has obviously has the effect of some amazing effects on the mentee who get this this bigger brother bigger sister kind of person in their life just to support them for however long but we often hear the mentors saying that they feel like it's they're getting more benefit out of it than the mentees and that just speaks to the power of, of mentoring itself that when you when you give back and when you kind of help a, a younger person on their journey it gives you so much in itself that you know, kind of a perspective on what you've been through how much you've learned and grown and kind of seeing somebody back there early on in their journey just reminds you just how far you've come um, so it's immensely just giving for, for both sides. And in, for a young athlete, it's, it's, very, it's a very rare, very unique relationship. So they're, they're surrounded by teachers and coaches, and their parents, adults who all have some kind of skin in the game for them. And when a, when a mentee meets their mentor in our program, some of them have described it as like a breath of, like a, a sigh of relief that they so quickly notice that this person is just, has no has no ulterior motives for them they, they're simply there to support them you know com completely neutral doesn't they don't know all the people involved in their kind of sphere we, we match across sports purposefully so it's just a completely neutral person who's going to be with them on this journey for a year and we'll meet them where they are at and we'll just try and help them however they can and that's that's a, it's, it's a pretty special thing to kind of facilitate that relationship because it's it's so rare in, in a young person's life would you recommend it to, for every organisation to kind of implement their own version of mentoring? Without doubt. I think our blue sky thinking for this programme has always been to kind of around the Olympic sports and UK sport, that for every athlete coming onto a world-class programme to be a, to be mentored for, for their first year, it would just make so much sense. And equally for everyone transitioning on the, out on the other side to be a mentor because it's kind of, it, it can make a huge difference on that kind of, sense of fulfillment of your journey so it can help you deal with the transition on the other side as well and I, I just think that 
it makes so much sense or internally as well we, we think we like to do it across sports because that kind of really highlights that this is about the person not not just yeah, it's not technical tactical coaching it's, it's really about the person behind the athlete but internally within a, a football club a rugby club you've got academy players coming up you've got senior players you've got alumni who've left sometimes are all could they just match so perfectly to help each other out and considering the kind of age that we're living in of, of this kind of mental health crisis and in young people especially anxiety and depression and and in elite sport it just makes it makes so much sense there's so much power in it and kind of utilizing the, the human resources and growing the relationships i mean there's just so much great stuff about it i use my own three three-step mentoring process where i'll have a a wise old coach mentor that i talk to for guidance and to to just just un, un, unwrap or unravel various things that are going on then on my level i'll have other coaches from other sports or sometimes in my own sport but often other sports where we'll have common problems and we're both probably on similar career paths and so we're we're talking about slightly different things that we're mentoring each other around and then our mental below so i'll mentor a young coach or an athlete where you're reminding yourself about your fundamentals and your foundations and your and your the values on what helped you get to where you got to so yeah, I use that as individually, but I could see now when you just talked about that, how it'd be really proactive of, a, say, a football club or a rugby club to have your athletes, your players with mentored by an ex ex player. You then maybe got you know another player from another sport that you're linked into, and then you're also linked into the academy. That's quite powerful, and would go such. I mean, go a long way to that kind of personalised approach. That is almost impossible for coaches to do. I mean, they have a group of 20, 30 players often. They they can't have in-depth conversations about how each player is doing each week or each day. But that's what a mentor can be. It can be the person who's checking in regularly, every week, every two weeks. Our program is they meet up every every week or two for half an hour to, to two hours. And that I think it would just go a huge, a hugely long way to to help with a lot of the issues that we're seeing in, in elite sport and work. Mm. just by talking to you there i suddenly thought about how it'd work in sports teams and yeah i'm gonna i'm gonna plagiarize this i think and bring it into a couple of teams because i could well and also it will it will stop people like me as consultants it will take the jobs away from people like me in a good way because a lot of the stuff we do is the one-to-one stuff and actually it's much more powerful doing it in a mentoring um, environment what would you say if have you got a key goal but for anybody that's set up mentoring what they would at the end of the journey they would like to see every year and every we get, we get kind of amazed by how the, the different trajectories that each relationship has gone off on and which kind of areas of the the curriculum that they've kind of really taken to or how their relationship is built up and that we have a set of learning outcomes that we have, we hope to kind of we have we hope we have moved the needle on and we we do assessments pre and post the program, the program for mentees and mentors. So we we get some data back on, on whether the needles moved on on those, as well as on kind of well being and mindfulness scores. Beyond though, that kind of data collection, it's so difficult to say what I would hope for for any one person to have felt like it was a positive. Again, to felt like it was a positive experience to have their eyes open to to some new perspectives. That would be a success in itself. But but really, it would be about the relationship because. That building of a bond, that building of a special relationship is the thing that can can last for so long. That mentee then almost takes their mentor, mentor's voice with them for many years, kind of 
giving sage advice. Obviously, they're giving themselves sage advice, but they're they're kind of prompted by the the talks that they've had with their mentor. Yeah, so it can continue way beyond the formal. It just becomes, you know, informal, unstructured, lifelong connections. Yeah, I mean, for, I mean, in terms of communication, there can be that, but just that their young person takes the the vibe of their of their mentor with them as well in the back of their head. And you you've actually talked to one of our current mentors, Chris Skelly, recently. Yeah, yeah, I spoke to Chris uh, not too long ago. He's such a good guy, isn't he? Yeah, he's wonderful. I'm hoping to go up up to Walsall to to watch him and his and his coaches do their thing shortly. Yeah, he's full of so much, so so full of energy and positivity. Yeah. So I can imagine. You know, look, I'd like to be mentored by Chris. He, he would. <laughs> he would definitely if I was feeling a little bit under the un, under the under the weather or less energy in the mornings I can imagine he'd get me get me back to where I want it to get to and yeah yeah it's good it's good to hear that and I'm sure for Chris it will help him in his personal development as well um I think that's the that flip side of the coin isn't it that that mentors get just as much and certainly from what you said and what I've seen as in some of the other stuff I do in mentoring I get huge satisfaction out of seeing people becoming better and one question that i that i held back we haven't used the word service but a lot of what we're talking about is to provide service for others and i wonder how central that is to the true athlete program and how you can put that into a program formally yeah well absolutely it's central i mean it comes out in the the community and responsibility module very specifically but this is another one of the these things that we just we know is is integral to a, a life of meaning and fulfillment is being of service to others so i guess that the kind of a summary of the of the book and our approach as a whole is that traditional kind of sport culture traditionally has has tended to focus on just the wrong things for creating for creating the impact that sport proposes to support to, to kind of promote which is kind of building up people and improving society and the the way the, the focus in the, the the way that sport culture has gone is to focus on the results and medal winners and money and fame and that's it. And those are the not, that's not the stuff that will lead to any kind of meaning and fulfillment in life. So what are those things? Those are the things that lead to meaning and that's relationships and being of service to others and growing yourself personally. So yeah, service is, is, uh, is, is key to that. I mean, it comes in, it's packed into the mentoring program. So the mentors are giving back and kind of showing these mentees that this is a part of their journey. That module, uh, Community Responsibility, is about kind of highlights, exploring ways in which athletes can, these young athletes can give back in small and big ways, um, highlighting that, that actually those times you get a chance to give back to your community or do something for others, they can be the most meaningful parts of your entire journey as an athlete. So that experience of mentoring a young boy in 2010 it wasn't in my sporting life, but it's certainly one of the kind of parts of my my journey in those those 12 years that I look back most fondly on, and kind of most take most from. So I think just again, it's a it's some awareness raising, like for an an elite mentor, this mentor that a young athlete respects and kind of knows has been through so much to to tell them that this this stuff matters. This is the stuff that you should be you should care about because it matters. It just has a huge impact in itself. Many of the different topics that we've covered so far are all part of being mindful. And we'll hear mindfulness being talked about all the time. I mean, in every podcast, it kind of gets a gets a glance or it gets 
gets gets hit full on. I'm wondering what you would, if I asked you the question, what is and what isn't mindfulness? There's a good reason why it's getting mentioned all the time is because it, it's being increasingly recognized for, for how important it is. So, I mean, what mindfulness is, is focusing your attention on what's happening right now and not being lost in thought about the, the future or the past. Um, so just being present to and att- for attending to aware of your feelings, the sensations in your body, the sounds around you, the whatever you can see and, and try and holding your focus there as long as possible, which is usually only a few seconds for, for most people. What it's not is any kind of, or not, is certainly not necessarily a, a religious practice or a practice which is meant for relaxation um, or to help you go to sleep, although it, it can be those things as well. It can be relaxing, but that's not the, that's not the purpose of it. The purpose is to, to kind of grow your awareness of what's happening right now. The present moment is all that we ever really have, but we get so lost and so wrapped up in, in the clouds of the past or the future. And the, the benefits to athletes are just so innumerable that that's, it's, it's why it's so central to our, our project is, I mean, it has, it also epitomizes what we're all about in the trade. So we believe that you shouldn't have as an athlete, you shouldn't be kind of having your, you do your performance over here, performance training over here, and then you go to a, a workshop for, for well-being or your mental health once, once a year or something. Actually, uh, the, the, kind of athletic training should build up the whole person and improve somebody's mental health and well-being and their athletic performance at the same time. And that really is what mindfulness practice is. It's one simple practice. Often it's just attending to your breath, focusing on your, the feeling of your breath. It can have these quite profound performance benefits. So increasing your focus and concentration and uh, emotional control and it also has these well-documented, amazing kind of mental health and well-being benefits as well. So this, this one simple practice can, can do that all for you. So it's a no-brainer so for athletes considering it in their training program. Uh, I do it every morning. Um, how, do you do it? Do you have a routine? Is there anything that you put into your daily routine? And would you, would you mind sharing it with us? Yeah, uh, I do. I just, just before I touch on mine, there are two two kind of quick examples those those people who are still kind of wondering a bit say i know i've heard this all before um the first time i ever did mindfulness i was in my early 20s and trying to focus just trying to sit for five minutes whatever whatever it was and focus on my breath losing focus just 30 times within those five minutes it just gave me this this revelation of hang on my brain is not on my side here I'm, I want to do this. I just want to do this simple thing for five minutes. And my brain is doing whatever else it wants to do. That in itself was quite profound for me. Okay, I, I need, I always thought that, yeah, I always thought that kind of my brain was working, working with me or for me. But no, actually your brain is pretty much doing whatever it wants in the background. And, and you kind of have to figure out strategies to keep it on track. So that, that was just a simple and revelationary experience for me. And then... I mean, yeah, this idea of staying, keeping your mind in the present focus and in the present moment, every athlete knows his experience being in the zone before. That feeling of just utter kind of harmony of what you're doing and just it's the best experience. Everyone's searching for that. All their athletic life, if they've ever experienced that once, they're searching to get it back again. Now, one of the key elements of being in the zone is entirely wrapped up in the present moment. That's, that's it. That's all there is for you. 
So, of course, if you want to, if you want to get back in the zone, then training, being more present more often is one of the best routes to doing that. So that's just two, two kind of selling points that I, that I often use. Um, yeah, in my present life, I do, I do have a, a mindfulness practice and it's sometimes formal. So I, I get to sit for 10 minutes or 15 minutes, but more often it's linked into my kids' routines. Of, so for quite a long time, for quite a few months, I had to sit by my daughter's bed. She's two years old now, but I had to sit by her bed while she went to sleep and hold her hand. She wouldn't, she wouldn't let us go until she'd fallen asleep. So I had anywhere between 15 minutes and an hour each night, just sitting in the dark. And that was just an excellent time to get my mindfulness practice in. <laughs> yeah, that's a, great, that's a great story. And I guess mindfulness does come up like that, doesn't it? It's not necessarily structured. It can be, but it can be in those moments where you're having a walk or you're re reminding yourself that you're losing focus might be listening to someone you, you're suddenly not focusing in on on their words and 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 uh and mindfulness therefore is is super super important for all of that the the other stuff that i was wondering whether mindfulness jumped into some of your um some of, some of your life is um you were trained as an outdoor leadership guide in canada what was that like and did that have any link at all to any of the stuff we've talked about or is this just a a random piece of research that i've picked up I'm, I'm so glad you picked up on it. That was one of one of yeah, one of certainly one of the best times of my, of my life. It was four months of yeah training in how to guide climbing and whitewater canoeing and kayaking and mountaineering and ice climbing and flat water canoeing and just out in Vancouver Island in the most beautiful scenery in the world. And we had it was a hundred a hundred day course and we had a total, we, we had seven days rest of that 100 days the rest was preparing for trips and, and being out on trips in in the wilderness doing i mean doing different sports i mean it, it, they, i remember so clearly that when they presented the program we arrived at this this lodge and they presented the entire program to us like day by day or week by week and i just i just couldn't keep a smile off my face like this is just going to be amazing so how i mean how it connects to, to lots of the Lots of the themes we've touched on, certainly the nature and kind of the, the responsibility for nature kind of aspect that that was a big part of that program is kind of our responsibility. Like you said about leaving no trace, that was absolutely central to all of our kind of one of our <laughs> one of our leaders ate, ate an apple and then ate right down to the stalk and then put the stalk in his pocket. Like that, he took that to an extreme. Like <laughs> <laughs> We were in a forest. We were in a Canadian forest in the middle of nowhere. Um, and then, yeah, I think I just built in a kind of, I mean, what, when you're out in wilderness, it makes kind of that mind, being mindful and, and mindful practice so much more natural, I mean, so to speak, just so much more, you just want to take yourself off and sit looking at that view and not be anywhere else in your head than right there. So I had a lot of practice. So eight years on, is that stuff, any, anything that there that you learned still with you? I really hope so. I often find myself thinking back to that time still weekly. When you're stressed or just generally just to feel good? No, just generally just to, just to remind myself of that part of me. Um, and I can actually, I connected to my future as well. I have two young kids and yeah, we live in the city in an apartment and I know I think what that memory kind of triggers in me is 
we have to plan in significant time out in nature with with my kids when they get old enough to to start getting out properly. Um, that's a huge thing. It's just a it's a part of me that I know is so important and that that I value so much. So that that has to be us as a family. And what about holistic retreats? How do you feel about them and with athletes in mind? Well, we 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 want to plan some holistic retreats in the Trafi project um, around lots of the stuff in the book. I mean, just to being physical, but also kind of connecting the, the yin and the yang describes it so nicely, kind of connecting the the emotional, spiritual side of of what we go through as humans to these athlete, young athletes experiences. I think there's there's huge untapped benefit there. I mean, we're only just scratching the surface on the psychological kind of elements, but the emotional and the spiritual realms are, oh yeah, we're, we're barely even glancing at them. And there's, there's great power in them. I imagine you've had, you, I mean, the spiritual must come into the Fijian culture quite, quite a lot. And what's your experience there? Yeah, no, it's, 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 it was, it was a daily occasion, whether it was something called a lot that we had in the morning and the evening, which in, in Fijian means church, but it would just be a spiritual moment where we would sit on the floor before breakfast and everyone would be cross-legged. So physically at, physically we were at the same level but we also hierarchically we were the same level for those moments and so anybody in the in that group could feel they could say whatever they wanted to say we'd have a little prayer that was basically like look after everyone today let's have a good day sing a song which also had got you get you deep breathing and doing stuff together then you had a hug and then we'd go and have some breakfast and in the evening we'd do the same thing but we'd say thanks for looking after us today and then have a sometimes the boys would have a bible reading we sing a song and then anyone would get up and say anything they wanted to say about whether it was good or bad or apologize for something they didn't they did or they asked for forgiveness whatever it was and you bookend everything have a hug and have dinner and then i would i would also put spiritual in the spiritual bracket in the evenings we'd have these not every evening because we were i got nutritionally I, i got them eating the right stuff but we'd have hot chocolate or tea and we'd just have a sit around um talking and sharing stories and just a bit of like community love really around things and so you would go to bed with a real lift because you just felt that community and that 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 group around you that vela mani as as we called it so i think it doesn't have to be in like you don't have to go right we're going to a retreat but i can see the value in that because for different organizations different people at different times that can make a big difference to them just having a gear change and a shift in their thinking and moving a bit to the we not the me as well that's super inspiring ben i think that that speaks to i mean so much of what i i think we're missing in in so many kind of sport cultures or just traditionally in the west and it, it just taps into our, our heritage our kind of biological makeup of, of being of coming from tribes and just desperately needing that we more than the me i think we i think sport is a is a prime a kind of prime soil for, for growing some of that stuff and it just requires us to to come to put it in there i mean in fiji it's part of their culture their national culture so it's there already but that stuff i think there's so there's so much power in that 
So much power, yeah. One of my previous guests was Owen Eastwood, who talks about mm. tribes as a lot and belonging. But he, he would say that, you know, in ancient times, that our, our job as a leader is to look after your village, look after your group, you know, feed them, protect them, take them from one part to another when they need them to move and keep everyone safe. Don't lose anybody on that. And actually, as we've moved to modern times and certainly in sporting environments, there's still the wanting to get to achieve certain things that you needed to do. But if you lose people on the way, well, maybe that was okay. You know, if we still get, if we get to the goal where we want to get to, and it's it's reminding people that that's not okay, that that isn't actually what what we're about. It's keeping the whole group safe and together, as well as moving towards something that we all want to achieve. I was super inspired by Owen's book, and I had a couple of chats with him after after reading actually. Oh, brilliant! Yeah. I love it. Yeah. He, he's such he's such a good guy, isn't he? And it changed my my shift. At the time, I think it was in co- just got out of COVID when we when I spoke to him properly, and um, I, I talk about this all the time. Belonging for me is crucial, you know, and um, and so you want to live that, and you want to find that, and you seek it out, and then nurture it, and all those sort of things. And I had it with Fiji, and I lost it when I became a consultant, and you're spread so thinly, you don't really feel like you're just dipping your toe in, you know, and you don't feel that that belonging. And so Owen just talks about it so beautifully, and. And he works with so many organisations to then encourage others in that group to to find that as well, which it's not a surprise. Those those places he works at are generally very, very successful because they put that front and centre. They're not employing somebody to, you know, hammer the hell out of a GPS unit. It's um it's the other it's the softer stuff, but it makes a huge difference. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um when he in his book he writes about the, the Maori word or name for leader rangatira which just it summed up what i would like to be as a leader which means the weaver together of people i thought that that really that struck me as as inspiring that's that's the job of the leader is to weave together their people throw something else that i really like that you mentioned in the book of the second arrow Mm. because i think it's a another good way of people using a i love storytelling and this is a simple story that's a proverb i think that just helps people deal with what's being fired at them if you wouldn't mind explaining the the second arrow yeah well it's a buddhist buddhist parable um where the first arrow that you get struck with is the event whatever happens the the thing that your boss says or the selection that happens that's the first arrow and that will cause some pain as it naturally does but actually it's a it's the second arrow that usually continues that pain and, and exacerbates it. And the second arrow is your response to that event. So in that sense, you have a you have a choice about the second arrow. You can't choose the first arrow, but you have a choice about the second arrow of how you respond to that first one. So this is a it's a it's a mindful parable about being aware that it's not all all of your thoughts, all of your reactions are not an automatic follow-on from, from that initial event. It's actually just a lot of it is, is something you can choose if you're aware enough of it. Have you formalised, I'm trying to remember, was it, was it the uh, ERA framework that you use as well for reflection that's, that's quite similar to that really? It's just like making it a little bit more formal, that experience, reflect and act or action. And that's part of the reflection process that you will also deliver as part of the True Athlete programme, right? Yeah, I mean, that, that was a model that I, I found that represented it nicely for, for the book. 
I think reflection, we all know that reflection is such a key element or the key element in learning and development. There is none, none without reflection. So we we try and we try and kind of bring reflection into all of our programs however possible. So a really simple version of it of training camps when we when we go to to help sports. So training camps will they'll be check in and check out scores. So you check in with a score of how you are, where where you are right right now and that allows you to see what kind of day you have potentially in front of you, how much you have to give, for example. And then you check out based on, could be various things, but your, your effort and your attitude throughout the day. So that's a, a simple, but quite, quite powerful reflection tool. I think on a kind of, on a slightly deeper level, there's in our kind of uh, coach development and, and our mentor development kind of offerings, there's kind of reflective sessions built into that. So sessions where, where groups will get together, smaller groups, five to six people, and just reflect on, on what they've learned or, or what they're, the mentors and the mentoring journey, they reflect on that together. So without, without kind of other agenda than just chat about what you've been going through. There's a football team that I work with that do that reflection exercise after training, but for the, so they'll reflect, they'll give themselves a mark and they'll give the coaches a mark as well. So, and the coaches will do the same. And then they'll share it with everybody. I think that could be quite powerful when it's done properly. It keeps everybody um, aware of their actions in the present a little bit more, and also helps to build a bit of trust that you know that every every that if you get a low mark, it's only because everybody wants you to get better and it's positive criticism and trying to what what's the what are they rating they d- either give a one or a six so they don't there's nothing in between so uh, the, based on on what on, the, on how well they did yeah so whether the organ whether the training session was as good as it could be really so from the players you know they have a set of values around you know have, have they shown their that they've got energy that they're contributing they've got the training or coaching to a to the level that is above the line that everybody wants to get to or is it below the line um and they'll mark them on that and then they'll say if there's anything that why it's a one so was it because you know coaches forgot to bring their whistle out or the session went on for 50 percent too long or was it because the the players were late coming out or they didn't have the energy that they needed or whatever that might then go drive to further conversations around, well, why, where's that energy? Where's it missing? Why is, why is that? Are we working you too hard at this time? Or are you, where was your focus before training and what did, what happened? So it, so it goes on to other questions around that, I guess, on that reflection, but they don't do it for the, they don't individually reflect on themselves. They have small groups. Some of the clubs I'm at where they have three, two or three athletes that will, will, will reflect with each other, a, a kind of a hot reflection if that's even a word. Um, so yeah, uh, so, so those sort of things. But I think that reflective piece and actually putting a, some understanding around it and then kind of taking it to wherever your environment is and making it bespoke for you, it ties into a lot of the stuff that we've just talked about, really. It's another one of these things that's so often missing from culture, sport and kind of practices. There's, there never seems to be time to just sit down and reflect for groups of coaches, especially, or maybe even the athletes, but, but it's just so, it's so pivotal. So we, we like to think, yeah, we're, we're providing some of these spaces for, that, that, don't, that don't get provided in normal developmental spheres. You have a, another thing that you use to reflect and project in the future. So a, a thought exercise where the 90 year old you is sitting down, if you wouldn't mind explaining, explain that. 
Yeah, this was this came from one of our mentors actually, who used it with their mentee and then told us about it and said how how great it was, and we just kind of put it into our into our curriculum. So it's it's a it's a fairly classic thought experiment of imagining yourself as a ninety year old kind of on your birthday, sitting with a cup of coffee and reflecting and and just considering all of the things that you've done and that gave you meaning in life and. You can take it in, in various different ways and you can be more specific about it. You can you can take various birthdays along the way. Um, but that one, they just said that mentor kind of fed back to there. It just led to the most kind of wonderful conversations with their mentees about it. And the mentees said the same thing, but that was one of the things that stood out most about her year was that, that session they did around that exercise. Thankfully, there's not too many people that will not see the benefits of what we've talked about today, but there are some still. What's your message to to anybody that might still have any sort of cynicism around what we've talked about today? If if this is absent in a team or an organisation, what's the results of that now? Do you think we've been seeing the last these last few years of some of the incredibly damaging effects that can come of, of this human aspect being absent from elite sport of kind of abusive systems and toxic cultures, uh, right up to kind of really horrifically abusive coaching methods and and physical harm and mental harm i i would say that we just have to we have to re-question what will also i've kind of put forward in this book is that we have to re-question what the, the meaning of sport is for us right now so if it is simply about promoting winners promoting medalists and, and nothing else nothing nothing more meaningful than that then we're probably going about it the right way then then the human cost is, is fine to we can we can take that but really, most people will say that sport is about more than that. It's about the development of people and kind of improving communities, improving society. And if that's the case, then we're really we're missing some serious tricks here. And and we have to we have to get back some of the values of sport. And, and that is about yeah this this more human element of of making sure that we're we're creating we we have we have environments that build people up that help people thrive and not just survive in them. But focus on the things that are meaningful in life, and uh, we've, t- we've touched on a lot of those already, and and put less focus on on the results themselves. But but what we also know, and every athlete will be able to tell you, is that putting the pro- putting your focus away from the results and the, of the outcomes, and putting them on the things that, that matter, that, that are meaningful, that putting them on the process, those are the things that will help improve results as well. So so really. Uh, I'm not talking about, uh, we're not presenting, it sounds like you're fully on board here anyway, we're not presenting a a kind of a new culture which is all soft and and love and singing, which which just means less good performances. We're saying this is the stuff that will lead to breaking new kind of performance frontiers, as well as not breaking the athletes. The last few minutes of this conversation struck a chord for sure. Often the perception is that by creating a people-first environment, a safe one where you can speak up and be your authentic self, well, you're creating a culture not built for success, but as Lawrence points out so well, it is in fact opening the door to a higher level of performance and alignment within teams and organisations. I'm a big fan of storytelling and fables and parables, so I loved the one Lawrence narrated earlier, that second arrow. That's going to be impossible for any of us to avoid being hit by first arrows along our journey. They're often uncontrollable and we cannot time when they arrive. But the second arrow, 
That is the one that can really cause the damage, and it's the one we can do something about. Viktor Frankl, in his amazing book, Man's Search for Meaning, reinforces this with this simple but beautiful quote. Between stimulus and response lies a space. In that space lies our freedom and power to choose a response. In our response lies our growth and happiness. Plenty of resources get a mention in this show and I'll reference and link all of them and more in the show notes that are available at benryan.co.uk forward slash podcast, as well as links to all the previous shows from this series and the first on the usual platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, Amazon Music and Google Podcasts. Please click the follow or subscribe button wherever you are listening to this podcast so you can be notified straight away when the next episodes drop. And I'd love it if you want to reach out to me on social media or via the website benryan.co.uk. This has been Culture and Performance with Ben Ryan. Thanks for listening. Listener.